because you're jumping back into the gut. Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach, I really appreciate your support and sharing of the podcast. I'm excited to announce a new partnership that we have started and we are now presented by and supported by the outstanding team at risingcoaches.com. Aligning with a basketball brand like Rising Coaches has always been a goal of mine since starting the basketball podcast, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that has come our way. Rising Coaches provides access to the largest coaching tree in basketball. Through them, you can develop your craft as a coach, connect with other coaches and decision makers, be the first to learn about countless job opportunities on the exclusive Rising Coaches member site. Go to risingcoaches.com today to find out more and become a member. Excited to welcome author, coach, and coach of the coaches, Cody Royal, to the Basketball Podcast. Cody is author of The Tough Stuff and Where Others Won't. He's a former head coach, now coaching elite head coaches, and he shares insights about teams, coaching, leadership, and so much more. Cody is a standout voice in the crossover of leadership principles between sports and business. His first book, Where Others Won't, proposed that businesses should look at how pro sports teams focus on team dynamics and talent optimization in order to innovate. His second book, The Tough Stuff, discusses why the barrier to your team's performance is you, the coach. Cody, welcome to the podcast. Good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Long overdue to have you on. I've followed your stuff and your podcasts and your books for a long time, and you just do a great job in service of coaches. And uh, let's start with the uh, the most important question is, why do coaches need a coach? It's a great question. It's a very modern question, something that, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago wouldn't have been a question. And, you know, there's a number of reasons, but one primarily is just the speed of change in elite sport has outpaced the support infrastructure around us. And so, you know, you, you think back, if you go back and read articles from like 2001 about coaches, like a, a sporting department was probably a head coach and an assistant coach, and maybe you'd brought on like a fitness person at that stage. Uh, and then all of a sudden now you're at departments, you've got PhDs in there, you've got you know, way too many interns. You've got 20 coaches now um, and the head coach manages all of that. And so that speed of change has been very drastic. And and now it has essentially changed the role where you're not really coaching. You're, you're kind of a little bit more of a CEO. You manage departments, you manage people, you manage the flow of information and uh, and you also take on a huge amount of weight and responsibility. And so having someone, you know, a third party, an objective party to help you cut through some of that, help take a little bit of that emotional strain off you and maybe introduce you to some new ideas that you can't see because you're so head down, that can only be a positive thing. And again, uh, you know, to just to reuse the CEO analogy, uh, I mean, executive coaching has been a thing. It's a huge thing in Silicon Valley. You know, there's Book, there's a book called Trillion Dollar Coach about, you know, Bill Campbell, who was a football coach that coached Steve Jobs and, you know, Marissa Miller and, uh, and uh, Meyer and like all the, the CEOs basically used the same coach. And so, you know, this isn't a new concept. It's new in sport, but um, highly effective, like any coaching is, if you get it right. Well, I love that. And uh, I could not agree more. And the clients that I work with, the part that you just mentioned about having a third party who is not necessarily there in the same way as their assistants or the people that are there invested in it can kind of look at things objectively or differently without the emotion of being in that space with them. And that's a big part of it, isn't it? It's a huge part of it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm obviously still introducing this concept to a lot of coaches. It's quite new. And that's one of the things is I'm not tied to any of the politics. And so that comes with a huge advantage in that you can just go straight to this is the issue that I see based on either what I've observed in your environment or what you've just told me. 
this is you can just go straight to it you don't need to worry about oh, this person's feelings will be hurt or you know we've got to skirt this person or whatever it may be you don't have to deal with all of that uh, plus obviously the the ability to get outside the environment i coach seven different team invasion sports um, and so you know it, it can also get really tactical i'm a head coach i coach seven different invasion sports if you want to know about uh, defensive principles in soccer, uh, I've, I've got a coach. I can either go and get those ideas for you or I can just introduce you. Uh, and so, you know, there's also huge advantages there as well. Oh, that's interesting. You're a connector of coaches as well, which is a big, big thing and, uh, you know, is wonderful. And you mentioned this a little bit in passing, but can you talk about the weight because I think this is the main thing that coaches are experiencing and trying to find ways to be able to navigate the weight. I wasn't expecting to write a book about the emotional toll of coaching, but uh, a couple of things happened to me. I had a player uh, take his own life, and then a month later we had uh, COVID hit. So, um, you know, trying to help 50 young men uh, grieve and also navigate a global pandemic uh, that we hadn't seen anything like in 100 years, you start to take on a lot more of the emotional strain of, of coaching. And I went looking for either people talking about it, uh, resources about it, and there, there wasn't much, quite frankly. And so, uh, yeah, it was kind of the foundational idea behind writing the tough stuff. And then it primarily comes out in, in the second chapter, which is, you know, your fiercest rival is, is yourself and, and trying to unpack that emotional weight because uh, I, I see it as the big separator. So you've got, you know, your natural coaching talent over here and the more emotional weight that you layer onto yourself, the further away from your talent you feel, the further away from the team that you feel, the, the you know, the, the cloudier coaching becomes. And so there are techniques that, that you can use uh, even just talking about it, you know, what you're feeling. You know, Brene Brown talks about naming your emotions. Once you can name your emotions and talk, talk through it with someone, you can start to manipulate it in a more positive way. And so, yeah, I, I just see this as a huge thing. Coaches are taking on so much workload and so many people that it just creates this. The reason I... I do it the weight. It's like it feels like a weight on your shoulders, right? Like when you go, when you look at a coach who's on the hot seat, and you look at the photos of of him or her in the the newspaper before they're about to get fired, they look dishevelled. Like they look heavy. You see them a week later in the newspaper, and they their 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 hair's got colour back in it. Their, their their demeanor, their physical demeanor has changed once that weight comes off them. And so it's this emotional thing. It's not a, not a real thing, but it creates a physical reaction in coaches and, and the knock-on effect is to the players. And so that's why this is so important. So for me, I mean, Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart, I'm just reading it. So I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of that brilliant stuff. And, uh, you know, the other thing is like, and I, and I love this part about your book, because I've talked about this for years with coaches is you're trying to counter some of the fake stuff or the media or fan contrived stuff. For example, office hours, like that, the, the most important thing is that you're just in the office all day. Well, isn't the most important thing that you get your job done as efficiently and effectively as possible? And as we know, that has nothing to do with being in the office at 4 a.m. It has to do with your ability to be able to do work. And getting coaches beyond those type of stereotypes is really important for their growth, isn't it? It's probably the, the, the largest thing right now, right? So, you know, if you were to say that your players were dealing with like an emotional weight, so they were dealing with some sort of trauma, they were um, potentially abusing alcohol or drugs or food or uh, shopping or whatever it may be. They were, you know, they had a heavy uh, family life that was weighing on them. Uh, any of these things that we've talked about, you, how much time and energy and effort would be spent taking that away from them? But we have that with our coaches and we don't allow them to change. We just say, just kind of bury yourself in work and spend more time in the office and and it just adds to it. And so I think we need to start thinking about head coaches in particular as performers and 
when you start thinking through that prism, you start to think about the hours spent. Uh, how much can you really pick up and observe at 2am watching film? Um, you know, how much, how detailed can you really be at 3am? You know, those, those Bill Belichick stories about having the interns in mapping plays at 3am. How, how detailed are they? How detailed can they possibly be when they've had four hours sleep? Like we're supposed to be the experts in in human performance and what the the brain and the body can do, <laughs> and we're we're the ones putting ourselves in these situations where we already know we've already proven that your observation declines significantly, your communication declines significantly, your your decision making declines significantly, your attention to detail declines significantly, <laughs> right? And so the, the hilarious thing is, there's all these things we're supposed to be the experts in this. But we put ourselves into these situations where, you know, we're we're under some sort of physical duress and and mental duress, and you can't perform in that state. Yeah, we're not practicing what we preach, are we? <laughs> not at all. And uh, I want to get into some of the 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 specific because what I love about what you share is the practical. There's just a lot of really practical ideas and some of your stories as well are very practical to be able to put it in perspective for us as coaches. But one of them is the importance of self-talk in coaching. Again, something that we share with our athletes is something that's important. But again, and when we reflected back to ourselves, are we doing this to help ourselves? Can you talk about self-talk? Yeah, when I started to look at communication, you know, you look at the traditional, the you know, the big five written, spoken, all that kind of thing. And there were two that were, were really missing. And self-talk was one of those. Self-talk is thought of as this psychological principle, right? Like it's dealt with by a psychologist. But then we treat the others as skills, right? So you, you think about you can upskill your ability to write emails. You can upskill your ability to, um, you know, use pitch and tone to convey messages. But when you include self-talk as a skill, one, it makes you pay attention to it. So what am I thinking? Um, what, what is the dialogue going on in my head or the monologue going on in my head? Is it detrimental? Um, when I get into certain scenarios, how am I talking to myself? And then what's the knock-on effect to my behaviour? When you take that away from this is something that only a psychologist can fix and move it into the bucket with the rest of the communication skills and say, this is something that I can work on myself, you know, I, I think we as coaches can be a lot more effective because we know that we kind of do that anyway. We pay attention to our self-talk every, you know, commute home after every training session, after every game in coaching history is an hour in the car sitting there in your own head thinking about what could I have changed? What could I have done better? What did I mess up? When I said that, did that land? No, it didn't. And I know immediately because the players looked at me with a dull tone and I could see that. And, you know, so the self-talk's going on. If we start to treat it as a skill, we can really start to use it better and use it more effectively and, um, and potentially get away from some of those, you know, more negative or detrimental behaviours that we slip into. Yeah, it's such a such a difficult thing to navigate because I know we all go through that as coaches. But you know, it comes back to this, uh, and I don't even know where I got the expression, but uh, this idea that we wouldn't talk to our friends the same way we would talk to ourselves, right? And it's this I've, that's always resonated with me. Whenever I start to beat myself up, I start to remind myself about perspective and then how I can build myself up. And is it becoming consciously aware first of your self-talk? That's the first step in kind of navigating it. That's a good first step. Yeah. And, you know, funnily enough, it becomes a bit of a coaching practice onto yourself. So uh, awareness is the first step. And then, you know, you, you pay attention, you pay attention in different circumstances has, you know, people aren't just level in their behavior. You know, the, the example that I use is look at people in an airport. They just become ravenous, just beasts of people, right? They're, no one has any patience. 
everyone is shitty with everything. Everything is, is a huge problem. And then you take them out, they literally walk out onto the street and they're the most calm, collected people. And so people aren't even. And so paying attention in different scenarios, in training, in game, in the, in the, the cultural environment, um, in, in the office environment, how are you treating the interns, the receptionists? Like paying attention to all the different facets is a good place to start. And then you can coach yourself. You can create your own interventions with your self-talk like you would create interventions in practice for your players and cut yourself off from thinking detrimentally or talking to yourself negatively. So some type of intervention would be like thought stopping or something that helps you consciously stamp it out, throw it away, brush it away, whatever. You know, we've used these things for athletes as a coping strategy psychologically. So the same things apply to us as a coach. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I've used a couple for me, um, you know, in game, you know, I want my self-talk to be, uh, is just the, the same word is what are they doing? So my role on, on game day with my team before, before I left was overall strategy. Aussie rules, a big game, cricket size field, 36 players out there. And my role was to identify what the opposition are trying to do to us. And so, what are they doing? What are they doing? And then if I found myself slipping, you know, I had an intervention to say, okay, I've got to get back to identifying what the opposition are trying to do. That's one example, but you can do it for any multitude of, of you know, lines of thought that you might be sent down. You know, once you start to get into your subconscious and you're not really paying attention, you drift off. That's just a way to pull you back in. So I feel like another strength of what you're sharing is you're an advocate for coaches. And thank you for that because coaches need advocates and it's okay to be human being is what you say and to expect to be treated like one. And I love that aspect of what you share. And this is something that we can demand and with our uh, tactical barriers or different things that we put in front so that we, again, are treated as human beings. And then we consider ourselves that, and you connect this to organizations where one of the most important parts of an organization that's successful is that they unabashedly will use words like love and they talk about caring for human beings. Can you connect all that together for us as an important part of an organization? Yeah, so the magic of culture, the magic of team sports is the people. It's the humanity. It's not the tactics. It's not the building. It's not the teams like the... The, the Dallas Mavericks aren't anything, zero, nothing. The logo's kind of imaginary. It's just made up. What makes the Dallas Mavericks the Dallas Mavericks is the people and how they interact with each other and the, the humanity that comes out of that place. Um, I'm just using Dallas as an example. It was the first one that came to mind, but like any organization is just the people. And so, you know, uh, one, I think we kind of took that, servant leadership idea way too far to the point where it's like servanthood into detrimental, right? So I'm going to drive myself into the ground to be of service to you. And we kind of need to just smidge it back towards the middle a little bit um, because coaches do deserve to see their wives and husbands and daughters and they do deserve to be able to go for a run and they do deserve to be able to bring their best selves to work um they do deserve sleep they they do deserve to be a human to feel like a human when they walk into the workplace just like everyone else does now does that mean that you can't work hard does that mean you can't be unbalanced in portions of the season does that mean you can't um still be up at 3 a.m. Of course you can. You can do all of those things, but it's about creating a more human workplace. And if you're going to be unbalanced because you've got three games in seven days, find a way to try to rebalance it so that you're not just pushing yourself, you know, closer and closer to the edge. Because uh, I, I honestly think, Chris, like we're we're getting to the point where something drastic is going to happen. Like we're driving head coaches in particular so far that like we're on the, the precipice of, of something really bad happening. Well, obviously we don't want that to happen. And uh, for those that uh, don't follow Cody, definitely go follow him on social media at Cody Royal. 
because he has a whole thread. And I love that thread where you connect for us the different things that coaches have gone through, you know, particularly leading to firing or what they're doing in terms of that or resigning because of these different things, burnout as a general term, but uh, the weight, as you say. Yeah, and I mean, look at college sports, right? So you've got like Bronco Mendenhall just steps down and just he he chose humanity, right? So that's his story. Chris Peterson at University of Washington, he chose humanity. He wanted to be a human being in the workplace and not have to go through the, the slog and the weight and the recruiting and the and everything that came with it. And so people are choosing to step away from this profession. Um, Brad Stevens, right? So he went upstairs, let's not kid around. That was burnout, right? He had no energy left after five seasons. He's one of the young bastions of world coaching. Every, Every sport was looking to him in this prestigious role, this young guy, the culture, a culture guy, and five, what, five years in, he goes upstairs, means he's got nothing left in the tank. So we are losing great young coaches that can help change coaching because we are just driving them so hard and, and, and it can't continue the way that it's going. So what do you think is has to change in terms of that? Is it just perspective somewhat for everyone around that coach to understand that they do deserve to be treated as a human? Yeah, perspective would, would be a good one. I, I would I'd expand this out to the performance department, like what we're putting all of the the performance department through. Um, you know, is unethical, I would say. Um, and you know, the part of that as well is it's on us as coaches to educate everyone else on what we're going through. So if we're not willing to stand up and and say. I do want to be treated like a human. I, I do want to see my my daughter. I do want to go home and cook dinner for my wife um, or or even just sharing like what it is, how many hours we're doing, what we're going through so that other people can know. If we don't want to talk about it, no one's going to know or care. And so part of what I was trying to do with the tough stuff was create a little bit of community, make people realise that you're not the only coach going through it. It's okay to talk about it and start to normalize the conversations around it so that more and more people can talk about it and it's you know uh, not seen as as outrageous to come out and say i want to go home and cook dinner for my my wife it's amazing because again as male and females because this affects both genders in coaching it's it's again we're we're trying to live up this this false sense of what coaching is and uh, it's really hard to to break that cultural barrier of people's expectations of a coach and thinking that we can do our job in a different way, which is what we have to redefine for people. And the hardest part, I imagine, for all of us as coaches is to be vulnerable, right? To be able to openly talk about this. And that's just, again, a really hard thing that only later in my career did I get good at. Yeah, and that's the challenge is that you know, really there's this perception, even within our sports, that you have to have won to be able to talk about this stuff and you have to have won to be able to innovate. So, like, only basically, you know, if you look at the NBA, like only only Steve Kerr and maybe Pop and, uh, you know, and maybe a few others get to talk about things like this because they have job security. No one else wants to walk in and say, well, sure, this is my first job and the person that I've hired first is a coach for myself. It's not an assistant coach. The first person and my one of my conditions on taking this role was that I brought my own coach with me. No one is going to do that. They should. Um, but, you know, it, it just you just keep doing it until you've won and you feel like you've got the respect I think we should go the other way around and demand the respect and say, this person is going to look after me. They report only to me. And it's not an organizational hire, uh, but, you know, this person is going to look after me and make sure that I'm coaching at my absolute optimum. And then our players are going to benefit. The rest of the, the coaching staff are going to benefit. And, you know, I'm going to be healthy. <laughs> So connect this at the youth level, high school level, in terms of them finding someone in a similar role. Obviously, they can't afford to pay someone necessarily 
for that role, but is it as simple as finding a peer mentor or some type of mentor, maybe even outside of your sport that you can talk to? I think so. I'd recommend like a buddy system. Mm-hmm. You know, the great thing about colleges is that you, <laughs> you've you got plenty of, of head coaches. Now, you know, I, I will say as well that the detriment of that is that everyone is so head down in their program that often, you know, the the perspective isn't necessarily there, but it's still a start, right? It's still someone that you can associate with that is probably dealing with exactly the same problems that you're dealing with. And and if you go even further down, yeah, the youth level, uh, same thing. I mean, why can't you talk to a another coach? Why can't you have just a standing one-hour meeting with another head coach and you you both talk for 30 minutes about just what you're struggling with and maybe that's all you need is just uh, an outlet to verbalize what's going on in your mind. And so it doesn't need to be this, you know, hire that, you know, costs money that, you know, is a, is a full-time person looking after you. It can just be a, a colleague or a confidant that can help just unload some of that weight from you. I wanted to take a brief pause from the podcast today to tell you about the pick and roll offense course on basketballimmersion.com. An NCAA Division I coach texted me last week telling me that he joined basketballimmersion.com and took his first course. He told me, and I quote, the pick and roll offense course was tremendous. So many creative ways to categorize pick and roll concepts and make the teachings better. I cannot wait to watch more videos and complete more courses. Your learning will never stop as a member of basketballimmersion.com as there are 25 courses with more coming each week, over 600 videos, and now over 70 master classes on special topics and so much more. Get one-stop shopping to stimulate your coaching. Get access at basketballimmersion.com and support not only your coaching, but this podcast as well. Thank you for being part of this community. Great stuff. And uh, let's hope that everyone's working towards that, if not already, but after they listen to this. And uh, another thing that well, if, you, I, I, if you don't, if you don't, Chris, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, like no, this no. is, this is a competitive advantage. So like this, if you don't, someone else is going to, and think about that. Like if they're coaching way more effectively than you, they are going to catch up very, very quickly. Right. So, you know, the, at the professional levels, Pep Guardiola has a coach, Eddie Jones, who's England's rugby coach has a coach, right. The, the top guys are already going. And so think about them coaching at their optimum. Someone's going to do it and they're going to get ahead. I love that. Just, just direct to a coach thinking about wins and losses. And you say this and, and I say it a little bit differently, but I'll, I'll just paraphrase that the best player development is coach development, right? The best thing we can do for our team is develop ourselves and take care of ourselves, right? 100%. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the great thing is like we, we say that we're, we say that we'll, you know, turn over every stone looking for ways to, upgrade our players and to coach them better and and so this has to be one of them right like the ability to be able to have access to your full range of coaching talent means you have a much more robust portfolio of ways to coach the player so the player has to get better the team has to get better if you have greater access to to your awareness if you have greater access to your communication skills if you have better decision making Right. Like those are the three primary coaching skills and the things that decline the most when you're in a state of depletion. <laughs> and so if you can climb out of that state of depletion, there has to be huge advantages for the players. And that's the exciting part about all of this conversation is, you know, it's not just therapy. It's the fact that it has such a huge knock on effect to your players. And you say you're turning over every stone, but you're not really because you're driving yourself into the ground. So another thing I wanted to talk about is the interpretation of energy, which is something that you've, you've talked about a lot. And uh, my wife just walked in and I can talk to that, that she's an energy person. So to me, like this, this concept and what I've tried to research and learn more about is it's not just about interpreting energy. It's about using that interpretation to be able to drive, whether it's interventions or communication. And that's the important part about that. Can you talk more about this process? 
Yeah, so I did a podcast with Owen Eastwood who wrote the book Belonging, which everyone should read. Um, magnificent book, probably the book of the year last year, I would say, from a coaching perspective. And, you know, Owen and I talked about energy a lot and, and how we both see this as the, the future of coaching. So the ability to interpret energy. Now, the, the caveat to this is, Anyone in academia is going to tell you that it doesn't exist and it's not a thing because they haven't studied it. But that, you know, research isn't what's real. What's real is what's real. And I think as human beings, we understand that there is a, an energy to other human beings and there's an energy to a group. And those things are quite unique in a sporting sense in that your ability to plug into that collective energy of a group is, is a huge determining factor in your success as a coach, right? Your ability to walk into a locker room and, you know, the, the Zach Taylor and Sean McVay are about to do it for 53 young men in a Super Bowl, like how you interpret how that group is feeling and either intervene, not intervene, or say something helpful is, is a huge factor in whether a team can rebound from a deficit, a team can rebound after four straight losses, can just push over that hill and beat that rival that you haven't beaten in five years or win that away game, you know, on the road in the, in the playoffs. And, yeah, I think, I think we would be wise to start to pay attention to the energy and use that as the catalyst for our coaching rather than just being the coach that just kind of bursts through the door and, and delivers, you know, the, uh, the hairdryer treatment or the rocket or the, the you know, screaming halftime team talk. Um, if you can clue into the energy of the group and start to use that, uh, I think that's really skilled craftspersonship. It's, it's definitely an area which is undeveloped and uh, undeveloped because, again, it seems to be counterintuitive to, you know, the coach always having the answer and the coach knowing the solution rather than, again, working with your athletes to co-create solutions and to be more engaged in that way. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's really what it's about. It, it's, it's another factor in that co-creation. And so, you know, I can come to you and say, how are you, how are you feeling? All right, so that's a one-on-one -on -one interaction. But how you're feeling isn't how the group is feeling. And so, you know, there's, there's all those kind of dynamics that really go into being a head coach where you are, you're coaching the team. The individuals, uh, you know, I, I see that the team kind of first is is my methodology not individual first and so the ability to be able to interpret collectively how they're doing what their mood is um, whether they're nervous whether they're fearful for their positions on the team whether they're um, apprehensive about the second half whether they're intimidated by the opposition whether they're um, excited about uh, a second half comeback you know whatever it may be you better know um, <laughs> and you often won't be able to get it by asking. So you can, but I think there's another step, and that's to to kind of yeah interpret what you're seeing and and trust your instinct and your gut from a coaching perspective that you know I think the team needs this right now. Well, and you also demystify this process a little bit in the sense that you say we are not in control; we are educated guessers. And that's such a powerful thing for us to understand as coaches. And look, sometimes from the outside looking in, it looks like we got it right, even though we maybe didn't do something that directly led to the outcome that happened, right? Players can win despite us and they can win because of us. But all of those things come into this demystifying it and say, you know what? Mostly we're just educated guessing. Yeah, exactly. And that's not to say that it's not helpful, right? That's why that's why I say educated guesses, because both our coaching education our years of practice being around teams and and un understanding that energy. That's why I'm okay to talk about it because you you inherently understand as a coach when you start to say like a team has an energy, every coach will sit there and go, oh, yeah. Um, and so, but we're still educated guesses. We're not exactly sure what happened just as the fitness staff aren't exactly sure why an injury happened. Uh, it could have been that they weren't strong enough, but it also could have been something else. It could have been something genetic. It could have been an angle. It could have been a, right? And so basically all of us are 
uh, guessing to a certain extent, but we're using we're using data points, and they are significant data points. Like experience is significant, and I think we should get back to understanding that just because it's not a one and a zero on a on a spreadsheet or a score sheet, that it's not valuable. Um, it, it absolutely is. Like your coaching experience counts for so much. So plug into that, but still understand that you are guessing a little bit. So a lot of this connects for me because obviously I, I share the ideas around a games approach and small-sided games. And one of the values of that comes back to you as a coach that you get more game repetitions, coaching and practice that you would coach in a game or at least similar transfer of that. And then you go a step further, which I love, which is the game is king and in-game coaching rules all, which really for you points to what great coaches do to separate themselves is their in-game interventions. And it's probably not something we give enough attention to as coaches is the importance of that almost above everything else. Yeah. Again, this is something that I think has gone a little bit too far. So they don't give coaching awards for training design. They give coaching awards for impacting games. Mm -hmm. And I think we've lost sight of that a little bit, or at least it, it appears so on, on social media where everyone just shares their training and, and, you know, everyone comments on it and this is the best drill and blah, blah, blah. But um, the, the, the game is, yeah, the monarch and everything else comes back from there. Like everything else, if you were to design what coaching looks like, the game is always first. How do we pass information to the players to help them make more informed decisions or intervene for the players to create an advantage for our team. Like we, we can't move away from the fact that that is, that is the role. It's not to create these zigzagging drills and this one's three meters, you know, these cones are three meters apart. That's, that's way down the list for me. Your ability to turn L's into W's is where coaches stand out. That's where the craftspersonship is. That's where the excellence comes out. And if you can't do that, um, you know, you're, you're severely lacking in the key portion of what it, your job is. So speaking maybe to younger coaches then specifically, what are some ways that they can increase this ability? You know, obviously experience comes through more and more games and coaching more and more games and coaching as many games as you can at the grassroots level as you move up. But what other things can they do to be able to help themselves? I would, I would go through an exercise. So yes, like games, coach games. So, um, you know, I actually think head coaching should almost be its own stream. So if you can be a head coach at whatever level, just understanding how to manipulate the game in favour of your team, whether it's under eights all the way up to the NBA, I think that is a unique skill set that you don't necessarily get as an assistant coach. And so I would encourage if you want to be a head coach, be a head coach at whatever level. There is huge advantage to that. And then, yeah, another thing that you can do is, is strip it right back. Um, so undo all of the assumptions and all of the kind of throwaway things that happen in your game just because they've been done before. Really interrogate those. Uh, I'll give you an example from soccer is a couple of, coaches that I've spoken to have said, I just make substitutions because, you know, at about the 70th minute, because that's kind of what you do. They're like, well, so you're just doing like whatever you see on TV or like, so you're not actually manipulating the game because you need an intervention. You need more pace on the outside. You need a different central midfielder to, that can play different balls. You, you're just doing it because, and so, you know, in basketball, I would question why are you doing the things that you are doing? Are, are they designed to give you a competitive advantage or did you just see Pop do it? And, you know, that, that can be a really, that's a really challenging exercise, but it's a really helpful exercise for a, a head coach. And, and I think you'll find a bunch of innovations in there as well in that you can change the game that, uh, you know, the opposition won't anticipate because you're not doing what's expected. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We follow into these historical norms or these cultural norms of just what you're supposed to do as a basketball coach, for example. Like we're supposed to sub a player as soon as they get two fouls because that's what everyone else does as a simple example. And the reality is you shouldn't. You should do what's best for your team and for that specific situation and that specific player. And you also mentioned the craft. Part of the craft is bravery. And that's that's a challenge for coaches, isn't it? To be able to develop the bravery, to be able to make the decisions simply for their team with no worry about fans or administration perspective on what you did. Yeah, exactly. Very brave, especially in this climate, right, where you've got so many armchair experts and everyone knows better than you. And everyone, you know, if you take some some fans' favorite player off, you know, they're angry at you and they think you can't coach. And so, again, this kind of comes back to that weight, right? Like that's part of the role is you have to wear the responsibility of things like that, fans getting upset because you took their favourite player off. Or, you know, in, in the NFL, there's been like uproar on Mondays because a bunch of coaches have gone for it on fourth and short in key situations. And, <laughs> you know, and... But again, part of the responsibility becomes for us to educate everyone on why those decisions were made. There's an opportunity often, you know, at the elite levels for press conferences. So rather than giving the kind of nasty, bitey response back, sit there and tell them why the decision was made. Here's what went into it. We got a buzz down with the data. We we looked at that data. We I had a gut feel. My assistant coach had a gut feel that we wanted to put this player. We thought they had a good matchup against the opposition player. So we took that shot. The shot didn't work out, but the decision to get to the shot was the right call. Right Now you're starting to, to really open up coaching and make it accessible to people rather than saying, no, no, you guys are idiots for asking the question about why we, we got it and not sharing anything. I don't see how that is good for coaching. It's not good for coaching, but how, how do we break that cycle? Because I totally agree with you. I wish coaches would just come out and give their honest reason why they did something. And again, you can't question that because they have the data. They are with the team. They interpreted the information. So it's their educated guess that should be the best guess. And you know what? The reality is sometimes they don't work out, right? So how do we normalize that? How do we get coaches to the point that they're brave enough to do that and to educate. And I think it is moving in that direction. It is. You know, Brandon Staley, talking of the NFL example, Brandon Staley was the one that got up and, and actually spoke about it afterwards and said, you know, my decision was to try to win the game. You know, they're playing the Chiefs, a division rival who are, you know, for all intents and purposes, the best team in the last five years. Um, and you have to beat the champion, right? And so they decided to take a risk and, and it didn't work out. But you know, part of the response was I, I I coach to win the game. So again, I coach to make in-game interventions that help my team win, not just not just lose to the Chiefs so that everyone's like, oh, great, great effort. Again, no coaching awards for that. There's no great efforts awards. It's changing games to win games for your team. And so I think it takes a lot of bravery. I also think it takes, you better know what you're doing <laughs> and why you're doing it. But but also, you know, part of it is, is just um, we are part of a coaching community and it's beneficial not just for fans and administrators, it's also beneficial for other coaches when you explain things and, and help our craft. Right, Our craft as a whole is very closed off to people and that's why everyone suffers from this affliction of being questioned all the time because none of us want to talk about it. So, uh, yes, it's risky, but um, I, I, think we, I think it's an advantageous thing for our whole discipline, for the Aussie rules coaches in Australia, the my sport, for the cricket coaches, the soccer coaches. Like It's beneficial to all of us. If you're a trailblazer and you're willing to sit up there and, and go, we took a risk, but it was an educated risk and we were trying to win and here's why we thought it, you know, that's, that's a coach with some real substance behind them. I like that kind of coach.
Well, and to, to use your words, you know, when you talk about, you talked about it in a team setting, but we're, we're trying to develop this collective intelligence, right? For all of us in the coaching world to be able to educate others. And you mentioned Eddie Jones, and I think that's a great example for coaches. If they want to know, like go listen to some of his press conferences where he basically is so open and vulnerable about what he did or why he did or what a player did. And I think that's just a great representation of the coaching craft, as you say. Yeah, exactly. And and again, I'm, I know this sounds very different because historically it's been, you know, again, the, the coach was the keeper of all knowledge. And so why would you share that knowledge? But every single basketball drill that's ever been designed, every single play that's ever been designed, it's all on YouTube. So if you think your knowledge of something is your competitive advantage, I got news for you, man. It is not anymore. <laughs> I can, I can start to coach basketball just off YouTube and I'm an Aussie rules coach. And so you better have some more substance behind what you're doing. And, and it's probably more likely how you teach the nuances of what you're trying to do to your team than, than anything else. And so you don't need to give those nuances up in any explanation, but um, yeah, don't, don't go thinking that you've got some knowledge that others don't because everything is online. So one of the, the the best quotes that I got from you is your vision for your team is far less about how they'll play and far more about who they'll become. And that's essentially what you're just saying there is that, that that's, that's our overriding purpose as a coach, isn't it? Big time. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it was, I think it was uh, Dave Bo Swinney who was talking about, you know, that they can prepare for, for what we do, but not who we become. And it's a similar, similar kind of line, uh, that that I used, and and that's that's really it. It's you know, um, when you come down to the last two minutes of of a championship game, it's not tactics. The players can't remember it because they're you know they're gassed, right? Game seven, scores level, it's a mad scramble, right? Like watch any last two minutes of any championship game where the scores are close. There are no tactics going on there. It is a mad 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 ball mad house like crowd in it players are just players are taking fadeaways from like half court and right and so it's it's who you become and how interconnected your team is with each other is far more important in you know at that championship level than we give it credit for and so you're trying to create a a, a together group, a group that has belonging, that doesn't fear taking risks um, and that can have some sense of collective intelligence and um, get out there and get the job done. Well, I love so much of what you share and particularly because again, for me, it's all about developing ourselves as a coach, but ultimately the beneficiary of, beneficiary of all this is our teams and our players and our organizations. And that is the bottom line of this. And I want to share one other kind of quote that I think is so relevant to get you to talk about, and that's to have coachability, you have to have coach ability, which is the ability of a coach to be able to coach players that aren't always able to fit into the square box or the round hole, right? And too often, especially as youth coaches, I find we dismiss those players as being, oh, they're a problem or they're uncoachable. But you're saying we should look at ourselves first when we're dismissing these players because there's a way to get connect with them yeah yeah exactly uh <laughs> that quote came from really frustration from me i i was sick of seeing you know system coaches or, or my way or the highway coaches um and reality is that there's a human being underneath that player and often you can uncover so much about them just by asking things you know what uh, rather than penalizing them for being late for training what if you asked them if there was something that you could do to help them um you know maybe maybe one of your players is late because um she was getting her children off to school and then had to catch a bus to training right did you ask or did you just find them uh, that, that's really what we're talking about. And that's what then becomes who they become. That's where that clues into that. Your coachability around who they become uh, comes from 
the human angle and we, we need to reintroduce a lot of humanity into coaching because that's where the magic is. The magic isn't in the X's and O's. The magic is there is a bunch of human beings there that have all signed up for this journey with you. And if you can bring them to life and, and you know, bring their humanity out and their magic out and their smiles and have them enjoying themselves and bring their best skills and have them playing in games and, um, you know, performing tasks that make them light up, that's why we do what we do. And so that, that takes coach ability. I would break the word in two. Coach is the first word. Ability is the second. Cody, this has been amazing. I, I just think this is stuff coaches need to hear. And not to hear that they don't know, but to hear because it adds support for them. And that's what I find is one of the most important things is that they know that people like yourself and our platform at Basketball Immersion, we're giving a voice to these coaches and to help, as you said, start to build this collective intelligence so others understand. Uh, coaches, uh, the tough stuff book from Cody is a must read where others won't. And then where others won't as well, he had a podcast series that went along with that, which is must listening for coaches. And uh, Cody, again, thanks so much. I'm not sure if you have any last thoughts to be able to share with us as coaches. I would just mimic what you said there. Uh, the, the coaching community is thriving and it is strong and there is a lot to learn from each other. And, and I'd love to see us come together across sports more. So, you know, you've got a powerful platform in basketball, but can we go and talk to the, the hockey guys and girls? Can we go and talk to the football guys and girls and, and cross-pollinate a little bit? And all of a sudden we're, we're three and four times the size we were as a, as a community. And what you realise then is that whether it's grassroots or whether it's Sean McVeigh, like we're all going through the same things. And so we can help each other. Well, I love that sentiment and I'm in. So when we let's build this and uh, let's do that and uh, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Cody. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at immersionvideos.com. At immersionvideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to immersionvideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at Immersion Videos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.